Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 36, with our guest today, Dr. Michael Gerhartz, and our book today, a little bit of an odd turn today on the podcast. It's not a serious book. Well, some people take it seriously, but you can see it on the YouTube as I slowly bring it up. Douglas Adams' titular classic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, I am reading, and we, actually we will be reading, Dr. Michael Gerhartz and I will be reading from the Pocket Books version published in 1981, what I consider to be the most momentous version of this book. Today, as we discuss, well, as we discuss a number of different things, including how best for leaders to avoid panicking in leadership situations. And I quote directly from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. At 8 o'clock on Thursday morning, Arthur didn't feel very good. He woke up blearily, got up, wandered blearily around his room, opened a window, saw a bulldozer, found his slippers, and stomped off to the bathroom to wash. Toothpaste on the toothpaste on the brush, so scrub. Shaving mirror pointing at the ceiling, he adjusted it. For a moment, it reflected a second bulldozer through the bathroom window. Properly adjusted, it reflected Arthur Dent's bristles. He shaved them off, washed, dried, and stomped off to the kitchen to find something pleasant to put in his mouth. Kettle, plug, fridge, milk, coffee, yawn. The word bulldozer wandered through his mind for a moment in search of something <laughs> to connect with. The bulldozer outside the kitchen window was quite a big one. He stared at it. Yellow, he thought, and stomped off back to his bedroom to get dressed. Passing the bathroom, he stopped to drink a large glass of water and another. He began to suspect that he was hungover. Why was he hungover? He had, had he been drinking the night before? He supposed that he must have been. He thought he caught a glimpse in the shaving mirror. Yellow, he thought and stomped onto the to the bedroom. He stood and thought, the pub, he thought. Oh dear, the pub. He vaguely remembered being angry, angry about something that seemed important. He'd been telling people about it, telling people about it at great length. He'd rather suspected. His clearest visual recollection was of glazed looks on other people's faces. Something about a new bypass he'd just found out about. It had been the pipeline for months, and and no one seemed to have known about it. God, what a terrible hangover it had earned him, though. He looked at himself in the wardrobe mirror. He stuck out his tongue. Yellow, he thought. The word yellow wandered through his mind in search of something to connect with. Fifteen seconds later, he was out of the house and lying in front of a big yellow bulldozer that was advancing up his garden path. And thus we begin The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, with, a, with a, a, an appeal, such as it were, to the ridiculous, the ribald, the satirical, and indeed the sublime. It was once stated, many, many years ago, by someone a lot smarter than me, probably, that when fact becomes the legend, well, you print the legend. Well, in the case of Douglas Adams, and in the case of the world we now live in, well, the legend and the fact and the satire all kind of write themselves, and I think Dr. Gerhardt would agree. Douglas Adams was an English author, screenwriter, essayist, humorist, satirist, and dramatist, according to his Wikipedia page anyway, which you would be amused that we're repeating this on the podcast if he were still around in this universe. 
He wrote from a perspective that parodied the absurd thinking and the decision-making of people trapped in faceless bureaucracies, powerless to do much to affect the movement of those institutions. Which is to say, he wrote of people trapped not only in history, as maybe a John Dos Passos might write about, but also seeking to find something of meaning in events in life that seemed fundamentally always just a touch beyond their control. Standing at six foot five and not apparently athletic, Adams focused on writing creatively as an outlet for all manner of other dysfunctions and disruptions he would experience in his very English, very appropriate, and very, very, very driven childhood. After leaving school, Adams started out hitchhiking on his on-road to enlightenment via satire by sticking his thumb out and picking up a ride with the British surreal comedy troupe, your friend and mine, at least in college anyway, Monty Python. Now, it's as long away from Monty Python to the galaxy as it is from getting to your house blown up one day to the restaurant at the end of the universe. And there are lessons for leaders within that journey that we will discover from the book we are reading today. And we're going to start with discovering something about Adams and the Hitchhiker's Guide with our guest today, keynote speaker, consultant, podcaster, and coach, Dr. Michael Gerhardt. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Dr. Michael, or just Michael. I think we'll just go with Michael. I think we can probably just go with that. Michael is totally fine. <laughs> Michael totally fine. Cool. Um, <laughs> so after that opening, Arthur Dent is, <laughs> Arthur Dent is laying, on his, laying on his sidewalk in front of his house, and there's some bulldozers coming, not just locally, but galactically. So what can leaders take from this book? from Douglas Adams' writing in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And, of course, introduce yourself to the folks. Uh, yeah, f first of all, welcome, Hassan. It's really great to, to be here, and what a great book you've chosen for today's episode. Um, well, um, I, I'm a coach, and I help my clients communicate with irresistible clarity, and I think that that, that will do for, for the episode. Um, my connection with, with, with that book is... Um, from my back from my teenage years and more even more so back from when I was at university I'm a computer scientist actually um, so not the most usual path towards becoming a communication skills coach but well that's what I am and as and I, I guess that's probably the most famous book of any computer scientist at least those that I do know and so I have a very long relationship with that book and all the other five parts of that famous trilogy um, so um, it and I'm really looking forward to today. So what can leaders take away? I think three things come to mind. First of all, don't panic. <laughs> I mean, seriously, because I mean... Trenchant advice, right? <laughs> I mean, um, the universe is going to th throw things at you, but the best you could probably do is to don't panic. Mm -hmm. And second thing that, thing that comes to my mind is... Um, that is probably not a good idea to take yourself so seriously. Um, because, I mean, in the end, after the Earth got destructed, mm -hmm. because it was standing in the way of that intergalactic bypass, um, what le what was left of the Earth was the entry in the guide um, sound, um, and, and that was mostly harmless. So, mostly harmless, that's right. So... So if that's what's left of all of humanity, um, it's probably a good hint as to not take yourself as one tiny 
part of your humanity too seriously. And third is, at least to my, and probably it's the biggest takeaway for myself um, from that book, is that answers are really meaningless until you know what the actual question is that you're trying to answer with those answers. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's interesting that you mentioned Douglas Adams being a computer scientist. Um, I had forgotten, and I'd read this book years ago as well, right, as a, as a teenager. And I think every teenager probably at a certain point, if you're of a certain character <laughs> or you have a certain mode of being, right, uh, eventually does run across The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, that, along with maybe a Kurt Vonnegut novel, <laughs> it's usually also uh, probably in your uh, Slaughterhouse-Five is probably in your in your back pocket as well. And Vonnegut, I hadn't really thought about this till just now, but Vonnegut and Adams both share something in common. And it is that sense that all of this is really absurd, and we are all taking it a little bit too seriously. And so maybe we just ought to lighten up. And this is somewhat the cure for, and this is why I wanted you on the podcast in our in our arc that we're in over the last few months, because we're really looking at the troubles and the travails of existential thinking, right? Um, starting with really just ripping into Nietzsche and really like going down and like really pulling apart Nietzschean ideas, right? And the serious part of Nietzschean ideas or the serious side of Nietzschean ideas is sort of where we've wound up in the West right now. At least that's our assertion on the podcast, right? A place where if nothing means anything, then why am I getting out of bed in the morning even to get a Cheeto, right? <laughs> but the other side of that is the absurdist side, which is, of course, nothing matters. So get out of bed, get a Cheeto. And by the way, as you're reaching for that Cheeto, don't slip and fall over something in front of you because that'll give you meaning. Pain will give you meaning. Is your is your now let's talk a little bit about the clients that you serve. Do your clients take themselves seriously? Because the podcast you've got art of clarity, like really, really good. You know, you're really got you know these really short, uh, pithy sort of two minute long podcasts where you're just you're cutting to the quick, right? You're getting to the, like the meat of the matter with what people should do. Are your clients really looking at? how to cut through to, I don't know, how to, how to, how to cut through the sublime out of the absurd. Um, I think w one thing that's in common for many of my clients, um, because well, first the unusual thing is that they are coming from all different sorts of industries and all different kinds of, and ranges of, of, of companies. So, but mm -hmm. the thing that unites them is that, that they tend to care more for their cause than they than they care for getting the spotlight um, upon themselves mm -hmm. um, and what a lot of those have in common is that they are often a bit skeptical about well those those extroverted show people so those salespeople who seem to just own the room and 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 put up all put on all these great shows on when when they when they when they tell you about their product and and probably tend to overpromise what 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 they are capable of doing mm. because they well because that that often seems to be what what gets people the success mm -hmm. um, while I'm not so convinced of that that's really true at least not in the long run it it often works in the short run but um, 
when you look at the 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 businesses who really show sustainable success and enduring success over a long period of time it's not the ones who made make the most spe spectacle the, the spectacular mm -hmm. um, appearances but those who care for what they do and then reflect on who is the person that i'm serving with what i do mm -hmm. um, and so by not taking yourself so seriously stepping down from um, from the hero's podium and leave, leaving that to your audience, to the customer that you're serving, um, helps both win a great deal in those relationships. It gets the customer what they really need, and it helps you make the impact that you're looking for. Yeah, and I apologize. I called your podcast The Art of Clarity. I might mix it up with another one. No, no, no. It's called Leaders Light the Path. Um, and, um, and, uh, you're right. Like, I, I love that name. I love that title leaders light the path because that's basically what you're asking leaders to do, right. Is to light the path, to show the way, um, yeah. which ultimately the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy <laughs> literal, which we'll talk about the literal hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy in a moment too. We will cover that on the podcast. Um, but, um, that is what, that is what guides the way that's what shows the direction, right? And that's what I think Douglas Adams was was sort of getting at. You know, how do you how do you show the way? How do you light the path? Um, and that's uh, that's just as critically important as maybe having the light on the path, um, which I think many leaders, to your to your point, I think many leaders want to be the light on, on the path rather than showing people the path. Very often, yeah. so mm -hmm. yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. Awesome. Well, um, so. And looking at this book, and by the way, um, for those of you who are regular listeners, you know sort of what our what our format, our structure is um, here on the podcast. But for those of you who are visiting with us new, who kind of aren't really kind of really understanding sort of what we do here, when we have an interview, when we have a guest on, um, we read a little bit of the book, um, and that really sets up sort of where the next pieces of our conversation are going to go. Um, and then we, we kind of have a really interesting discussion, and then we move on to other sections of the book. So you can listen to this in sections. Um, you can listen to it all at once. It does hang together as a whole narrative. Um, however, and I will state this at another point in time during our, during our podcast, we cannot possibly read the whole book. <laughs> Even a book as good as this one, we cannot possibly read the whole book on a podcast. Um, un unless, you know, someone's willing to be here for four hours, which we're not doing that today, but unless someone's willing to be here for four hours, we can't read. And even with that, we couldn't read this whole book, right? You can still only really read excerpts. Um, and it's the conversation, it's the insights, it's the commentary um, that really buttress this book uh, and in all the other books that we cover um, on our podcast. So just want to make that note because you will note if you're listening that I'm skipping around in various parts. Um, I'm doing that on purpose uh, because, well, heck can't read the whole book. <laughs> so returning to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, I'm going to go backward a little bit, and then I'm going to go forward um, just to sort of end up where, to sort of wind up where we should be, and then we're going to talk about what happens when they come to knock down your house. <laughs> I, want to, I want to get um, Michael's observations um, on that and thoughts on that. So Arthur Dent is laying in front of the bulldozers in front of his house, and um well, there's a, a man, uh, a very put-upon man named Mr. Prozer, who um, who shows up um, and, uh, well, is trying to get him out of the mud, right? Trying to extract him from the mud, even as his, um, 
Well, even after his direct male line descendants of Genghis Khan, which he apparently was and didn't know it, um, <laughs> um, you know, are, are racing through Mr. Prozer's genes right now in frustration, right, in the face of Arthur Dent laying in front of that bulldozer. And, um, and Prozer is going to go out and, and have a little bit of an interaction. So I want to cover a little bit of that, and then I want to talk a little bit about Ford Prefect and, and what you do when they come down and knock down your galactic house. So Mr. back to the book. Mr. Prozer shook his finger at him for a bit, because he's outside with Arthur now, and then he stopped and put it away again. What do you mean, why has it got to be built? Because Arthur had just asked him, why does the bypass have to be built? And he said, it's a bypass. You've got to build a bypass. Bypasses are devices that allow some people to dash from point A to point B very fast, while other people dash from point B to point A very fast. People living at point C, being a point directly in between, are often given to wonder what's so great about point A that so many people from point B are so keen to get there, and what's so great about point B that so many people from point A are so keen to get there. They often wish that people would just once and for all work out where the hell they wanted to be. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Proser, Mr. Proser wanted to be at point D. Point D wasn't anywhere in particular. It was just any convenient point a very long way from points A, B, and C. He would like to have a nice little cottage at point D with axes over the door and spend a pleasant amount of time at point E, which would be the nearest pub to point D. His wife, of course, wanted climbing roses, but he wanted axes. He didn't know why. He just liked axes. He flushed hotly under the derisive grins of the other bulldozer drivers. He shifted his weight from foot to foot, but it was equally uncomfortable on each. Obviously, somebody had been appallingly incompetent, and he hoped to God it wasn't him. Mr. Prozer said, You're, you were quite entitled to make any suggestions or protests at the appropriate time, you know. Appropriate time? hooted Arthur. Appropriate time? First I knew about it was when a workman arrived at my home yesterday. I asked him if he'd come to clean the windows, and he said no. He'd come to demolish the house. He didn't tell me straight away, of course. Oh, no. First he wiped a couple of windows and charged me a fiver. Then he told me. But Mr. Dent, the plans have been available in the local planning office for the last nine months. Now, don't worry, that's going to pop up again. You're going to want to keep that in mind as we turn and look at a gentleman named Ford Prefect. He was not conspicuously tall. Uh, his features were striking but not conspicuously handsome. His hair was wiry and gingerish and brushed backward from his temples. His skin seemed to be pulled backward from the nose. There was something slightly odd about him, but it was difficult to say what it was. Perhaps it was that his eyes didn't seem to blink often enough, and when you talk to him for any length of time, your eyes begin to involuntarily to water on his behalf. Perhaps it was that he smiled slightly too broadly and gave people the unnerving impression that he was about to go uh, for their neck. He struck most of the friends he had made on Earth as an eccentric, but a harmless one, an unruly boozer with some oddish habits. For instance, he would often gate-crash university parties, get badly drunk, and start making fun of any astrophysicists he could find till he got thrown out. By the way, that's an average Saturday for me. I don't know about Michael, but that's an average Saturday for me. <laughs> Sometimes he would get seized with oddly distracted moods and stare into the sky as if hypnotized until someone asked him what he was doing. Then he would start guiltily for a moment, relax and grin. Oh, just looking for the flying saucers, he would joke, and everyone would laugh and ask him what sort of flying saucers he was looking for. Green ones, he would reply with a wicked grin, laugh wildly for a moment, and then suddenly lunge for the nearest bar and buy an enormous round of drinks. In fact, what he was really looking for when he stared distractedly into the sky was any kind of flying saucer at all. 
The reason he said green was that green was the traditional space livery of the Beetlejuice trading scouts. Ford wished the flying saucer would arrive soon because he knew how to flag flying saucers down and get gifts from them, and get lifts from them, sorry. He knew how to see the marvels of the universe for less than 30 Altarian dollars a day. In fact, Ford Prefect was a roving researcher for that wholly remarkable book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, when we think about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, well, we're going to talk a little bit about it a little bit later, but it um, it's an interesting little book. It has a lot to say on a lot of different subjects. For instance, um, well, for interest, for instance, it's it's sort of designed like this. Um, uh, the contents of Ford's prefix satchel were quite interesting in the fact they would have made any Earth physicist's uh, eyes pop out of his head, which is why he always concealed them by keeping a couple of dog-eared scripts for plays he pretended he was auditioning for stuffed in the top. Besides the sub-Etha sensomatic and the scripts he had, an electronic thumb, a short squat black rod, smooth and matte with a couple of flat switches and dials at one end, he also had a device that looked rather like a largest electronic calculator. This had a hun- about 100 tiny flat press buttons and a screen about four inches square <clears throat> on which any of the million pages could be summoned at a moment's notice. It looked insanely complicated, and this was one of the reasons why the snug plastic cover it fitted into had the words, Don't Panic, printed on it in large, friendly letters. Now, while you're not panicking, <laughs> which is... Which is a which is a really good idea, <laughs> and uh, and we'll revisit that. <clears throat> Ford is about to help his buddy out, Arthur Dent, and um, well, Arthur's running away from Mister Prozer, and there's some other things happening which you'll see in the book. And then Arthur tripped and fell headlong, rolled and landed flat on his back. At last, he noticed that something was going on. His finger shot upward. What the hell's that, he shrieked. Whatever it was, it raced across the sky in its monstrous yellowness, tore the sky apart with mind-boggling noise, and leaped off into the distance, leaving the gaping air to shut behind it with a bang that drove your ears six feet into your skull. Another one followed, and did exactly the same thing, only louder. It's difficult to say exactly what the people on the surface of the planet, by the way, that's Earth, were doing now because they didn't really know what they were doing themselves. None of it made a lot of sense. Running into houses, running out of houses, howling noiselessly at the noise... All around the world, city streets exploded with people. Cars skidded into each other as the noise fell on them and then rolled off like a tidal wave over hills and valleys, deserts, and oceans, seeming to flatten everything it hit. But Arthur knows, or not Arthur, Ford knows what's going on. Of all the races in the galaxy who could have come to say a big hello to planet Earth, he thought, didn't it just have to be the Vogons? Before the Earth passed away, he was going to be treated to the very ultimate in sound reproduction, the greatest, the greatest public address system ever built. But there was no concert, no music, no fanfare, just a simple message. People of Earth, your attention, please, a voice said, and it was wonderful. Wonderful, perfect quadraphonic sound with a distortion level so low as to make a brave man weep. 
This is the prosthenic Vogon Jelts of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council, the voice continued. As you will no doubt be aware, the plans for the development of the outlying regions of the galaxy require the building of a hyperspatial express route through your star system, and regrettably, your planet is one of those scheduled for demolition. The process will take slightly less than two of your Earth minutes. Thank you. The PA died away. Uncomprehending terror settled on the watching people of Earth. The terror moved slowly through the gathered crowds as if they were iron fillings on a sheet of board and a magnet was moving beneath them. Panic sprouted again, desperate fleeing panic, but there was nowhere to flee to. Observing this, the Vogons turned on their PA again. It said, there's no point in acting all surprised about it. (laughs) All the planning charts and demolition orders have been on display in your local planning department in Alpha Centauri for 50 of your Earth years. You've had plenty of time to lodge any formal complaint, and it's far too late to start making a fuss about it now. By this time, somebody somewhere must have manned a radio transmitter located a wavelength and broadcast a message back to the Vogon ships to plead on the behalf of the planet. Nobody ever heard what they said. They only heard the reply. The PA slammed back to life. The voice was annoyed. It said, What do you mean you never heard of Alpha Centauri? For heaven's sakes, mankind, it's only four years away, you know. I'm sorry, but if you can't be bothered to take an interest in local affairs, that's your own lookout. Energize the demolition beams. And that's about the history of the Earth. And that's about the history of the Earth. <laughs> yeah. Long passage and a hard way to get there, but I want to ask you a couple of questions. <laughs> um, what do you do when they come to knock down your house? <laughs> if you're a leader and the plans have been at the planning department for 10,000 years, but you weren't aware there was a planning department and hell you weren't even able to get there and you can't lead your people there and now they're coming to knock down your house dr michael (laughs) what do you do what would adams recommend (laughs) i mean the book recommends not panicking but like what would adams recommend exactly um well, well, first of all, it might be enlightening to to consider what what most managers would do in that situation, mm-hmm. and that is to look for who's to blame, right? Right. <laughs> who's to blame for not knowing and not having noti- notified you about the the, the forthcoming destruction? Correct. Um, um, but of course, that's not what leaders do. That's what managers or officers do. Mm-hmm. So we, we're talking about leaders here, and well. So, so, what do leaders do in those in that situation? And yeah, of course, I mean, you you gave the answer uh, away. It's don't panic, obviously. Don't panic. Yeah. Um, um, but there there might be a couple of other lessons from from um, that passage uh, in the book, and one of those is that um, it probably pays to solve the important problems rather than the urgent ones because what felt urgent to Arthur then um, so that his own house was about to be demolished mm-hmm. um, might not be the thing that you should be concerned with but 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 it pays to keep the larger the big picture in view and mm-hmm. and and react to that rather than the, those tiny little annoyances um, that 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 plaster your way. Um, 
And then, and then there's another hint there, um, because I mean, Arthur isn't alone in his in his quest, right? I mean, there is Ford, and he mm-hmm. knows what to do, what to do, and um, he's there to help you. And that's probably um, true for most leaders. I mean, mm-hmm. you're you might not have to solve problems alone. You you might not be um, required to to um, solve every single problem yourself you might not you might not even be the most competent to do that mm-hmm. um, and and so it pays to have a team that you can rely on and to to trust in their ability um, we live in a time of outrage though like I don't know about because you're you're, totally. you're you're in Germany I'm in America I don't know it might be the it's same no there. Different, yeah. it's no different okay great so what I'm about to say okay the internet has brought us outrage at scale. Like I can be outraged about a riot in Sri Lanka or climate change or whatever the World Economic Forum is doing in Klaus Schwab. And then I can go also be outraged at my local burger shack because they undercooked my burger. Mm-hmm. And and I don't separate those because we live in a time of outrage, right? We live in a time of and I, I, I kind of put it in some of my notes here. We live in a time of outrage porn. Where it's, almost, it's almost like it's, it's sexy to be outraged, right? And I see leaders sure. falling into this trap, too. Um, you talk about the urgent versus the important. Uh, and I'm going to pick on climate change because it's the easiest one. Everybody sees it. Is climate change an urgent problem or an important problem? Well... Are the Vogons showing up an urgent problem or an important one? Mm-hmm. Because they put in the they, they they put in the plans fifty years ago at Alpha Centauri. Like we probably should have gotten our stuff together and gotten to Alpha Centauri. <laughs> so, so don't look up, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> don't look up. Exactly. <laughs> so what <laughs> One of the things that I see with leaders, you talk about the difference between leaders and managers, right? Sometimes leaders fall into the trap of having to manage outrage. And, and, and I see that on teams, particularly um, in, um, in, a, in, a, in an American context, right? You've got all these people that are very outraged about whatever the, the seemingly urgent thing is of the moment. And that may not have anything to do with our long-term strategy for where we're going as a business. Hmm. Do I care about the health and the life of the planet? Yes, absolutely. Please give me a break. Mm-hmm. Don't even bother asking me that question. But can I do anything about that right now, today, in the next three months on my balance sheet? Probably not. Probably not. I can make some, start making some changes, perhaps. I can start tweaking some things here. And by the way, I'm not talking about tweaking my marketing. <laughs> I'm talking about actually tweaking the things that actually matter on the back end. Sure, I could start that. But, like... I've got to manage this outrage. I think, I, I think there, there's one crucial, crucial distinction to make, and and, and w- one posture that that probably fuels that outrage culture, and that is that sort of we're we feel entitled to be right and mm-hmm. to 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 um, to sort of have everyone agree with us mm-hmm. and we fight for being right as opposed mm-hmm. to trying to get things right uh, yeah. um and and th- that's 
a slight shift in in grammar and in 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 the the word that we use it's just one word flip but mm -hmm. it makes all the difference um if when you stop being right and start trying to get it right it means that you might start listening to what the other was actually saying let alone meaning when he said what he said and whether he might whether well dare 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 me um that that it might have even been in good intentions right rather than throwing some swearing at myself um so and and, and if we if we just stop at just always justifying our own positions because we feel that we have to be right. Something that we learned in school where, where it what was all about being right and getting the A. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not how life works when we're grownups. Right. Um, there it's much more about getting things right. Well, and I think like the, so the, the title of the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy works on multiple levels, <clears throat> which is why it's a brilliant title. So The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is the name of the book that tells the story of Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect and their hitchhiking around the universe after the Earth's destruction. Yeah, okay. And inside of that, inside of Ford Prefect's satchel is the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So it works on multiple levels, as the kids would used to say back in the day. Now they're in their 40s and 30s. Uh, it's meta <laughs> at multiple levels. <laughs> it's meta before it was meta. <laughs> um, but it also works at a level of metaphor, right? Where the metaphor for what you're just talking about is, and you mentioned being a grown-up. It's a metaphor for being a grown-up. Stick your thumb out. Don't panic and freaking pick up a ride. Let's go, right? And I wonder in our time, particularly in the Western world, and this is a disease of the Western world, I think, when everything's so easy, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, everything has become so easy. Um, material want at the level that we see in certain other parts of the globe just doesn't exist here. Not at that level anyway. It just doesn't. Not in my country anyway. Um, we have wealth out our ears. Um, even the poorest of us have wealth out our ears. Per capita, give me a break. Um, $32,000 a year, please, we're killing it. And what I'm concerned about is when you have too much, I wrote about this in my book, The 12 Rules for Leaders, right? When you have too much, then it becomes the management of too much. And then every little bit that's a degradation of that, a degradation of that too much becomes a massive piece of outrage. Um, and that is a disease, I think, of the West. It's a disease of prosperity. And I'm, I, I challenge leaders to, to figure out how to lead on that because you've got to get past that. Um, there's a reason why even as you materially become wealthier, you spiritually become more bereft. Um, and it doesn't, those two things don't, we, we think, we like to think in our heads as human beings that those two things match up and they yeah. don't, you know, just, just having more stuff doesn't make you better. Um, and having more access to stuff doesn't make you better. Adams understood some of this too, when you look at a little bit about him um, and about who he was as a writer. Um, you know, the first years of his career were not great. He had to struggle, you know. Um, yes, he did get on Monty Python. Um, he got a couple of scripts produced, and then he got rejected by them. Um, they booted him out um, for one reason or another. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. 
Um, but he worked um, a series of, and I think of the writer Charles Bukowski. Um, <laughs> if anybody ever knows who the writer and poet Charles Bukowski is, um, they uh, they may want to check him out. But um, they worked. He worked a series of odd jobs. Um, he was a hospital porter, of a barn builder, a chicken shed cleaner, and a bodyguard for an oil family um, from Qatar, uh, which he was six foot five. So I guess they figured, well, he's a big enough. And I'm sure this was the context they put it in. He's a big enough Caucasian British man. Like, he'll scare anybody. <laughs> and and during that period, um, depression, outrage, and probably a lot of cursing and visits to the pub um, became a lot of what Adams, I suspect, went through. Um, and he had this great quote. Um, and since there was no Twitter at the time, there was nowhere for him to publicly vent this. So he did what most people did before in the pre-Twitter, pre-outrage world. He just sucked it up. <laughs> he just like, I don't, I don't know. And he, and he said, uh, quote, I have terrible periods of, lacks of, of a lack of confidence. He was still writing during this whole entire time. I briefly did therapy, but after a while I realized that it was like a farmer complaining about the weather. You can't fix the weather. You just have to get on with it. Um... I think that is, I think that is absolutely critical feedback for people in our time. You can't fix the weather, you just have to get on with it. Um, question, and maybe you can jog a little bit on this. If you can't fix the weather and you have to get on with it, how do you go about doing that without losing your mind as a leader? Now, don't worry, we'll go back to the light stuff in just a second, but this is this is something that I think is really worth exploring a little bit with this book is kind of like the baseline for it. Um, how do you go about doing that as a leader? How do you go about advising leaders and how to do that? I think one important aspect that relates to that, that the hitchhiker, I think, has as a theme in, the, in its second book, um, is the insignificance of almost everything. Um, I mean, there there is that that chamber that is meant meant as a torture, um, where where you get in inside to sort of appreciate how insignificant you are because it makes you realize how small you are as a human being or as a being. Um, uh, in the whole universe and in its whole extension in, in, into every dimension. Um, and um, th th this thought um, materializes in, in various places throughout the hitchhiker. Um, and, and, and if you appreciate that, that, well, what you find or consider as sort of the most most important thing in the world and that, that absolutely um, makes or breaks your day or even your life, it's still rather insignificant in relation to the, well, to the um, vast um, dimensions of all, everything else that's going on. And, and so just appreciating that you might not be the center of the universe and other people are struggling with similar problems or even more, way more severe problems than you do um, might help you put your struggles in relation and just well relax a bit and then um, 
reflect on your situation and then look at what, what, what can you do actually? And where are the things that you have actual influence on that you can actually take actions that change something, even if it's just a tiny bit? That idea of significance and insignificance, that idea of understanding, and it kind of goes along with the urgent versus the important, right? Um, philosophers for years have um, have indicated that, well, and, and not just philosophers, theologians, right? That human beings are seeking significance, seeking meaning. As a matter of fact, I just listened to a podcast um, recently, because I do listen to podcasts myself, <laughs> um, that's one of the one of the big reasons why I even um, why I even have a podcast um, is because I listen to podcasts myself. Um, one of the big things in there is the man's struggle for meaning in a postmodern context, right? Um, and it's not just leaders that struggle in this space; it's all human beings that are struggling right now. Um, and where the greatest meaning is. And I've, I've heard it stated that the greatest meaning is in love or is in pain, right? That's where the greatest meaning can be found. But I think for the average leader who's, you know, I'm, let's say picking on, I'm in, who's in a manufacturing company, a car manufacturing company in Dresden, right? You know, like they're, I don't know how much they're searching for meaning as they are searching for a paycheck and a comfortable life. And what that actually means, right? What the comfortable life actually means. And not necessarily for them, but for their children, right? And for the people who will come after them. And for maybe, if they think about this broader, their larger community. And you see, I see the same thing reflected in clients that I work with in America, right? Mm -hmm. um, the guy who runs my, the bodega down the street from me in New York City, you know, his family, you know, came here from Puerto Rico three generations ago. And like he's for him, he's hit he's hit the top of his meaning. You know, he just he has. And for him, that bodega is just as significant as the job is for the guy in Dresden on the car line. Yeah. On the Mercedes Benz line. Um, or BMW, <laughs> whichever one. Um And then we'll go back to the book. But how do we reconcile those two things? Because I get the sense that Adams was trying to do that in all five of his books. He was trying to reconcile that idea of meaning and significance. Because at a certain point, you got to go beyond the material, right? you got to strive for something something higher, right? Yeah, and, and that, that that's what, what kind of happens all the, the way through the book. And and we have even that, that, that ultra-smart robot, Marvin, He's mm -hmm. depressed because he's so super smart. He's he's so absolutely more smarter than everyone else he has any conversation or relationship to that he gets totally depressed with that. And that that strikes me as something that 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 provides a path um for for what you just outlined that 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 desperate search for meaning that that might not be what most people need in the first place um it, it might just be that that's something that's a very good sale for a lot of coaches out there who try to sell you on meaningful life coaching or something like that <laughs> um and not not everyone has that calling like for example, Mozart had, uh, who, who was brilliant at the age of four, or right. like the film director Werner Herzog um, oh, says, yeah. who 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 um, 
reports that he didn't choose filmmaking, but film chose him. Film chose him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not everyone has that, but but everyone has things that provide them with joy and full a feeling of fulfillment and that that doesn't have to be always the ultra meaningful things the we save humanity sort of dimension it can be just well to help your children rise to becoming a a good good a good adult or mm -hmm. or, or good 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 human or yeah. to, to just help I don't know your brother or your sister or or just some random person on the street have a brighter day today and if that's what what provides you with sort of a feeling of fulfillment or joy then that might be sufficient rather than to give to to try and give that a name tag that has mm -hmm. some some broader some, and brighter meaning. Yeah, some broader cosmological significance. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> gosh, you know, every time I talk with someone on the podcast, and we do eventually wander into some of these areas, because I think it's important for leaders to sort of think about these kinds of things. Um, this is why I'm not a big fan of the modern MBA program. The modern MBA program will tell you how to read a spreadsheet really, really well. Um, the modern MBA program will teach you how to run um, you know, the operations of an organization really, really well, but it won't talk about this stuff and the spreadsheet reading and the plugging of human personnel into roles while important is not the whole thing. Yeah. Matter of fact, I would Absolutely. assert it's probably about five to 10% of the thing. The other 90 to 95% of the thing is this. It's the, it's the, it's the other stuff under the iceberg, or not under the iceberg, but under the water. <laughs> you know, you see that, and we spend so much time talking about that top 5%. That's not put that top 5 to 10%. And don't get me wrong, the top 5 to 10% stuff, the finances, the accounting, the spreadsheets, the personnel, all of those things are incredibly important and valuable, and we value them because we can materially see them. But you want to know where issues of identity come from and meaning? Or why you need a D&I coach sometimes. It's because of all that stuff underneath the water. Yeah. You got to look at all that stuff underneath the water as a leader. And so we launched this podcast because we don't need another financial podcast. We don't need to read another business book. <laughs> we need literature. Because mm -hmm. that gets you to that other 90 to 95%. I don't want to quite introduce Zaphod Beeblebrocks just yet, <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over Zaphod for a little bit. Um, and I want to talk about getting out in the nick of time, because Ford and Arthur got out just as I mean, literally, the Earth was like destroyed like ten seconds after they after they beamed out of there. Um, I had a history professor many years ago, um, and this guy, he had an autistic son. Um, he was living in the real world, and he was a grown-up. Um, you know, he had a son who was autistic. He had a passion for history. He had to make, you know, ends meet. And so he taught history at our local, and I don't know how, how the college system works in Germany, but we have these two-year schools that are kind of like trade technical schools, but most, but over the last 30 years, they've sort of become jumped up, you know, mini, mini colleges, right? 
And, um, and, and by the way, the trade and technical part has actually started to separate off more and more and more into separate schools, which is unfortunate. Um, it's that mm -hmm. continued specialization thing that we, <laughs> we really like here in this country. Um, but, um, but in going through my junior college experience, this guy was a great history professor. He was fabulous and he was real. And I took a history class at six o'clock at night. And that's where you find real people. <laughs> I found that out a lot later. That's that's where you find the real professors at. The people who are like work real jobs and they're like, this is my passion. So I'm going to come over here. I'm going to ramble. I'm going to take my money and then I'm going to leave. <laughs> it was great. And the guy lived in the real world, right? And he um, he had this quote um, and I've kept it with me for, for many, many years. Um, and uh, he said, if you study the long course of history, often you find it's better to be lucky than good leaders have all kinds of survive and there's now even a, a, a phenomenon called survivorship bias that's mixed into this <laughs> now the belief that like because i was lucky or because i was by a quirk of fate born with a certain skin color or in a certain class or a certain gender that i got certain privileges that i don't really think about and then i talk about my hard work but i never talk about luck and i should talk about luck because then i'll feel guilty you know all this i consider it to be nonsense i don't know what you consider it to be i consider it to be mostly nonsense you still have to put in work and you still have to mix all that stuff together because even if you are of a certain gender or a certain race or a certain class if you're just again sitting on the couch eating cheetos all day nothing happens so you have to do something right you have to take an action now what happens after that action the winding circumstances of fate that you have no control over yeah we could probably call that luck hmm. but let's not overweight that hmm. and i get really irritated when people overweight the luck thing or they try to make people feel guilty about the luck thing but in the case of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy in the case of ford and arthur and there are certain moments I do believe in every person's life and every leader's life where it is better to be lucky. And you were lucky at a certain point. You met the right person or you intuited the right thing or you observed through experience that this was the moment to move rather than that being the moment to move. And another person without those same experiences wouldn't have, wouldn't have intuited that. Like you just wouldn't have. There was no way they would have gotten there, right? But I also think that takes guts and hard-won experience and intuition. Um, what do leaders do with luck? I mean, the question here, the clear question here is, how can leaders get in or get out of something or of a circumstance in the nick of time and then communicate this clearly to your followers? Because you have to somehow explain that to people who are following you. How did you know to make that decision, right? Um, I think of it in terms of warfare, because that's usually where it's usually writ largest, right? You can actually watch old battles, um, like for America, the Battle of Midway, you know, in the, in the Pacific against the Japanese in World War II. That battle has been rerun. This is the apocryphal story. That battle has been rerun consistently by the military and simulations ever since World War II, and the Americans always lose. Always, which means on the practical aspects of the battle, the technical things that we value, that stuff above the waterline, America's done. And that turns the entire Pacific War, right? Mm -hmm. And when you go and you read stories of Midway, and I actually just watched recently watched a documentary about this. <laughs> the reason why we won the Battle of Midway was because one of the bomber groups, a fighter pilot in one of the bomber groups, literally turned and looked out his window at the right moment 
sensed that the Japanese ships were in another direction and then had the guts to turn the entire... (laughs) He led his entire group back to the Japanese ships without him literally turning and looking over his shoulder. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. You can't, you can't re, you can't replicate that. that. You can't plan plan for that. that. (laughs) But you can plan for preparing people so that they know enough to maybe turn their heads. Yeah. And it's still a risk. Yeah. So how do leaders, and you're a great person to ask this question. (laughs) How do leaders prepare for the nick of time thing? How do they, you know. Why do we have to it cut these things to so me, damn close? It, it, like, I think of that in Back to the Future when Marty, and I think of in terms of movies because I'm a cinema guy too. You mentioned Werner Herzog. That's why I know who Werner Herzog is. Um, very much. I love, love his movies. Um, but like, I think of Back to the Future, that great line of the Back to the yeah. Future when he's trying to get back in time and he's trying to mm-hmm. resuscitate Doc in the Old West. He says, why do we have to cut these things so damn close all the time? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, it seems to me that Well, one thing that that you that you often hear is that sort of you you prepare the floor for luck to happen, right? And yeah. and 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 well, it it seems to me that well, it's pronounced luck, but it's actually spelled chance. Yeah. Um, and that that might be a crucial difference between the people who sort of. Um, hesitate with luck or bad luck mm-hmm. um, and those who manage to well get that lift in the last second that damn close resolution <laughs> yeah. um, whether it's whether it's Marty and and, and uh, in, in back to the future or whether it's Ford and and um, and, uh, and, and Arthur, Arthur. Who, yeah. who who get that literally in the last second um or or the fighter were... pilot at midway i mean like just turning your head like literally the... and by the way they were almost exactly. out of gas like that's the weird thing they were almost out of gas they flew back on empty tanks yeah that's insane um, yeah and, and 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 still it, it was a chance and and right. they weren't they weren't just letting fate do their do its job but mm. but never get giving into um to the possibility that there might be something that we can do we might still be able to lift our thumb um and and do something even if it's most unlikely um but but really never give given much like rocky does in 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 his movie it's he just never gives in no matter how hard he's been hit he never gives in Mm. Uh, and he keeps on on looking for his chance, and that's what Arthur does. That's what Marty does. That's what what um, th- those um, um, pilots did um, back uh, back in the in, in the war. Mm. Um, and as a leader, giving your team that spirit of that we we just won't won't give our situation to luck and and let 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 time decide we're we're until 
luck has or until fate has done its job finally and 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 terminally basically mm -hmm. um there might still be something that we can do and there might still be a chance popping up and we're not the ones who 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 stop looking for chances and if you if you keep your eyes open for those chances there might just pop something up in the last second and because you were prepared for that and you prepared your whole team for that you're ready to take it that's part of leaders lighting the path it's the path sometimes to chance yeah not not the path to success in that chance because you might still fail <clears throat> exactly um, not not every chance you take is a hit yeah right exactly as a matter of fact most of them are probably misses like most yeah. of them are probably gonna miss yeah um but the What I hear you saying is that the it's more important. I loved how you framed it to lay the ground so you have the opportunity, not even the opportunity. That's a poor use of the word. It's laying the ground to have the sight to see the opportunity, the courage to take it, and then the willingness to take the hit of failure if it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, we see that in sports happen all the time. Yeah. It's it, it's what, what frustrates the mediocre teams when the great teams hit the goal in the last minute. Right. Because because the great teams never give in. They yep. never stop looking for chances, mm -hmm. um, which the mediocre teams do, who just might feel inclined to say, well, today's just not our day. Today right. we're not gonna gonna win that, and the oh. great teams would never say that. They will always until the game is isn't. If the game is not over, they will keep looking for chances to make that goal. I don't know if you ever heard this this phrase, but or this aphorism. I guess it's an aphorism. You know, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. <laughs> and uh, um, although I don't know if we can say that these days, but what the heck, I just did. Um, so, um, but, um, you know, and, and, and Will Smith said at Independence Day, and I ain't heard no fat lady, you know. Um, you can see it on teams' faces, too. Like, the great team leaders... Um, I don't know if I don't know in 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 in, uh, in football over in Europe if you see it as markedly as we do in American football. Probably you do, but like when the camera pans the team that's losing, it's in the last seconds of the game. You can see who's given up and who hasn't. And I've observed great team leaders in those moments, not necessarily when the camera is panning, but I've observed great team leaders literally yell at their people to get the hell up, get their crap together, and let's get after it. Yeah. We've got 10 seconds on the clock. We've got five minutes. Yeah. Why are you all sitting there? Get yeah. your faces up, get your crap together, and let's get the hell out there. I yeah. would do it myself, but I'm spread too thin. <laughs> <laughs> not not that yelling is always the answer but right 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 spirit, exactly the spirit the spirit of well we're not giving up because it's not over yet right 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 no i'm not saying yelling <laughs> well yeah. i see a lot i see tom brady in american football yell quite a bit 
<laughs> the last few years of his career. But then you do see others. You do. You see others who don't yell at all. They they quietly do it. You talked about being in, the difference between the introverts and the extroverts, right? Introverts quietly do that. They will quietly. I've watched them. They will quietly go through the team and marshal the team and bring it up, and they will quietly go out and, and do that mm. thing. Mm. Um, and I think that is awfully underestimated because we like the yellers, you know, because it, it, it's the show. It's the yelling show, so we like the show. Um, but um, but yeah, it's. It ain't over quite just yet. It ain't over quite just yet. And um, and that's what you see, by the way, in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It ain't over quite just yet. And we've been away from the book, but we'll go back to the book. So Ford and Arthur stared around them. Now, this is after they get on the ship. The Vogon ship, by the way, the very same ship that uh, was the bulldozer that was, <laughs> that, that well, not that was, that did destroy Earth. And, uh, well, they're in a little room. So Ford and Arthur stared around them. Well, what do you think, said Ford? Uh, it's a bit squalid, isn't it? By the way, that is a perfectly English <laughs> reaction. <laughs> well, it's a bit squalid. I mean, I did just get off the planet in the nick of time, but it's, it's a bit cramped. <laughs> <laughs> Ford frowned down at the grubby mattresses, <clears throat> unwashed cups, and unidentifiable bits of smelly alien underwear that lay around the cramped cabin. So even in the universe, it's, it's still a mess. It's, it's still a mess. This is what this is what Adams is showing us. Well, this is a working ship, you see," said Ford. "These are the uh, Denatrasis's sleeping quarters. I thought you said they were called Vogons or something." Yes, said Ford. The Vogons run the ship. The Denatraces are the cooks. They let us on board. I'm confused, said Arthur. Here, have a look at this, said Ford. He sat down on one of the mattresses and rummaged about in his satchel. Arthur produced, prodded, uh, sorry, Arthur prodded the mattress nervously and then sat on it himself. In fact, he had very little to be nervous about because all mattresses grown in the swamps of Scorn, Shellus, Zeta, are very thoroughly killed and dried before being put to service. Uh, very few have ever come to life again. Yes, you do have to go kill your mattress. Ford handed the book to Arthur. What is it? asked Arthur. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's sort of an electronic book. It tells you everything you need to know about anything. That's its job. Arthur turned it over nervously in his hands. I like the cover, he said. Don't panic. It's the first helpful or intelligible thing anybody's said to me all day. I'll show you how it works, said Ford. He snatched it from Arthur, who was holding it as if it were a two-week dead lark, and pulled it out of its cover. You press this button here, you see, and the screen lights up, giving you the index. A screen about three inches by four lit up, and characters begin to flicker across the surface. If you want to know something about the Vogon, so I entered that name. So, his fingers tap some more keys, and there we are. The words Vogon Constructor Fleet flared in green across the screen. Ford pressed a large red button at the bottom of the screen, and the words began to undulate across it. At the same time, the book began to speak the entry as well in a still, quiet, measured voice. This is what the book said. Vogon Constructor Fleets. Here is what to do if you want to get a lift from a Vogon. Forget it. They are one of the most unpleasant races in the galaxy. Not actually evil, but bad-tempered, bureaucratic, officious, and callous. They wouldn't even lift a finger to save their own grandmothers from the ravenous bug-bladder beast of Trawl without giving orders signed in triplicate, sent in, sent back, queried, lost, found, 
subjected to public inquiry, lost again, and finally buried in soft peat for three months and recycled as fire lighters. The best way to get a drink out of a Vulcan is to stick your finger down its throat, and the best way to irritate him is to feed his grandmother to the ravenous bugbladder beast of Trawl. Oh, on no account allow a Vogon to read poetry at you. Arthur blinked. What a strange book. <laughs> how do we how do we get a lift then? That's the point. It's out of date now, said Ford, sliding the book back into its cover. I'm doing the field research for the new revised edition, and one of the things I'll have to do is include a bit about how the Vogons now employ Denatrasi cooks, which gives us a rather useful little loophole. Now the Denatrasi cooks are, are one thing, but then you've got issues like, well, the babblefish, which is definitely something interesting that you would want to read about. And <clears throat> you've also got this idea of Vogon poetry, which is, of course, the third worst in the universe, according to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. However, if you have the poetry, and you also have a babblefish, and you have a human from the now-defunct planet of Earth, you may actually be able to get out of the Vogon ship, just not in the way that you really want to exit the ship. Speaking of which, um, well, they do exit the ship. And then the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is very helpful in what happens outside of the ship. And I quote, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a wholly remarkable book. It has been compiled and recompiled many times over many years and under many different ed editorships. It contains contributions from countless numbers of travelers and researchers. The introduction begins like this. Space, it says, is big. Uh, really big. You won't just believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Listen. And so on. After a while, the style settles down a bit and it begins to tell you things you really need to know, like the fact that the fabulously beautiful planet uh, Beth Salamine is now so worried about the cumulative erosion by 10 billion visiting tourists a year that any net imbalance between the amount you eat and the amount you excrete while on the planet is surgically removed from your body weight when you leave. So every time you go to the laboratory there, it is vitally important to get a receipt. Skipping ahead a little bit, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy says that if you hold a lungful of air, you can survive in the total vacuum of space for about 30 seconds. However, it does go on to say that, what with space being the mind-boggling size it is, the chances of getting picked up by another ship within those 30 seconds are 2 to the power of 276,799 to 1 against. Talk about chances. <laughs> Talk about odds. <laughs> Talk about long odds. Never give up. Never give up. Now, there's a ton of good stuff in here. And again, we're not reading the whole book. We're kind of bouncing around. We're skipping around. Um, one of the characters, though, that I want to introduce you to before we go, uh, before we close with, um, with Michael here, is I want to talk about the president of the universe. Well, actually, the president of the galaxy. I want to talk about... Well, I want to talk about presidential power. I want to talk about being at the top of a hierarchy, being at the top of a bureaucracy, being the man, such as it were, or three-armed, two-headed thing in charge. <laughs> 
humanoid might be the appropriate term, although I'm not quite sure. I want to talk about what it's like to be that guy. And so I would like to introduce you to a gentleman named Zaphod Beeblebrox. Zaphod Beeblebrox was on his way to the tiny spaceport on Easter Island. The name was an entirely meaningless coincidence. In galactic speak, Easter means small, flat, and light brown, to the heart of Gold Island, which by another meaningless coincidence was called France. Don't worry too much about it. Just go with it. One of the side effects of work on the Heart of Gold was a whole string of pretty meaningless coincidences. I'm not going to get into what the Heart of Gold is. Read the book, you'll find out. But it was not in any way a coincidence that today, the day of the culmination of the project, um, a great day of unveiling, the day that the Heart of Gold was finally to be introduced to a marveling galaxy, was also a great day of culmination for Zaphod Beeblebrox. It was for the sake of this day that he had first decided to run for the presidency, a decision that had sent shockwaves of astonishment throughout the Imperial Galaxy. Zaphod Beeblebrox? President? Not THE Zaphod Beeblebrox. Not THE President. Many had seen it as clinching proof that the whole of known creation had finally gone bananas. By the way, in my notes in the book, I have written next to that Donald Trump. So I'll just leave that alone there. Zaphod grinned and gave the boat an extra kick of speed. Zaphod Beeblebrox, adventurer, ex-hippie, good-timer, crook, quite possibly, manic self-publicist, terribly bad at personal relationships, and often thought to be completely out to lunch. President? Not one. No one had gone bananas. Not in that way, at least. Only six people in the entire galaxy understood the principle on which the galaxy was governed, and they knew that once Zaphod Beeblebrox had announced his intention to run as president, it was more or less fait accompli. He was ideal presidency fodder. Now there is a asterisk, and then you must read what is behind the asterisk. President, full title president of the Imperial Galactic Government. The term imperial is kept, though it is now an anachronism. The hereditary emperor is nearly dead and has been for many centuries. In the last moments of his dying coma, he was locked in a stasis field, which keeps him in a state of perpetual unchangingness. All heirs are now long dead, and this means that without any drastic political upheaval, power has simply and effectively moved a rung or two down the ladder and is now seen to be vested in a body that used to act simply as advisors to the emperor an elected governmental assembly headed by a president elected by that assembly. In fact, it vests in no such place. The president, in particular, is very much a figurehead. He wields no real power whatsoever. He is apparently chosen by the government, but the qualities he is required to display are not those of leadership, but those of finally judged, ready for it, outrage. For this reason, the president is not always a controversial choice. The president is always a controversial choice, always an infuriating but fascinating character. His job is not to wield power, but to draw attention away from it. On those criteria, Zaphod Beeblebrox is the most successful president uh, the galaxy has ever had. He has already spent two of his ten presidential years in prison for fraud. Very, very few people realize that the president and the government have virtually no power at all, and those few people, only six, know whence ultimate political power is wielded. Most of the others secretly believe that the ultimate decision-making process is handled by a computer. Uh, they couldn't be more wrong. Love that part. <laughs> Love that part of the book. <laughs> Even more fascinating considering how old it is. I now. know, right? <laughs> well, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> or or sometimes it's better to just understand the nature of a thing, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um someone once observed 
um, that politics was celebrity from the ugly. And, um, and Zaphod Beeblebrox is a good example of this. Um, you know, three arms, two heads, dubious character. Um, he was a narcissistic, hedonistic, charismatic individual and utterly without ethics. And Douglas Adams claimed that he based Zaphod on an old friend of his from Cambridge um, named Johnny Simpson, who had the nervous sort of hyper-energetic way of trying to appear relaxed. Um, mm -hmm. So that interview one time. Um, like most politicians, Zaphod claimed to be carrying out a grand scheme or a grand plan, but is he, he seemed to be as trapped by impersonal forces as everyone else around him. Um, the actual act of running for president of the universe itself seems to have changed Zaphod from what he was as a youth to what he became by the time we meet him stealing the heart of gold and making pointless speeches that don't go anywhere. Um, I think this is an interesting commentary. Uh, Zaphod is, is, is leveraged as an interesting commentary by Doug Adams on politics and the act of grabbing for power without clear intention. Um, but then again, that has never stopped people who are wired like Zaphod. So if I am serving, here's my question, or here's our question, Michael, and we're kind of turning the corner a little bit here on the podcast. Um, how can we avoid the trap of behaving without clear intentions? But then also sub question to that, what do I do if I'm serving, if I'm working for a guy like Zaphod? Because that's got to drive me crazy. <laughs> great, great By the way, wait till, wait till you see the video of this. He's got, he puts his hand on it. He put his hand on his, his hand on his chin. He starts stroking his chin. He's like, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> and, the, and then the pause. <laughs> I think uh, – what gets easily overlooked is that um, Zaphod actually acts on very clear intention, right? Yes, um, clear for him. He is, um, it turns out when you read further on in the book that the reason that, that there was actually a pretty good reason for him mm -hmm. um, for running for president. So it was not just pure... Um, pure mood that that made him run for president um which it which was to steal that um, brilliant chip the heart of gold uh, which made him run for president and that reminds me of um a brilliant quote by jp morgan uh, you might have heard that before and not not sure he once said that jp morgan once said that um every man always has two reasons for anything that they do um uh, the good reason and the real reason and the real reason that's right yes <laughs> and it seems that um the real reasons are actually the thing that that matter most here mm. um which are often not as clear to the outside as they might be to the inside but sometimes they're not even clear for the person who's acting who's mm. leading yeah. and and that seems to be to me, seems to be a crucial factor that you need to, or that you should be working on mm -hmm. to find clarity about those real reasons. They don't have to be as ill-meaning as stealing a ship. It could very well be something very good intentionally. Mm -hmm. 
like saving the planet or sure. yeah or building a great company that values um individual individuality or that values the people who work for the company um so but but, but finding gaining clarity about um um what what really drives the good reasons that you come up with for doing all the things that you do um so that you uncover those real reasons and com- can and then eventually can can um can communicate those clearly to the people you work with or you have relationships with helps you to light them the path towards that mm-hmm. that that goal that, that, that goal. really drives you and that might help them well decide whether they want to follow you or not or not yeah if i'm working for you though <clears throat> and i'm not seeing that clearly what do i do because that's a real challenge right zaphon knows what zaphon's doing mm-hmm. for sure but then you got all the guys aliens standing standing next to Zaphod, which we do find, by the way, later on in some other books and later on in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, we do find that other people are kind of confused by what the hell it is exactly it is that Zaphod is doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we actually see this most notably in the crowd in the speech. There's the alien woman or mm-hmm. female alien, I think, that he like kisses and then she thinks it's one thing, but he's, he's like, nope, it's something else. <laughs> and he yeah. sort of like, you know, trots off into something else. Um, how do I deal with that if I'm working with you and your motives are not clear to me? How do I resolve that tension or confusion? Because this is a real challenge for people. One obvious solution that, that many just dismissed as, as well, not being an option because I'm the one working for you is that you can just ask questions, right? Ding, That you yes. can, can just plainly ask so w- what do you mean when mm-hmm. you, or even are you serious um, how does that align with our broader mission yep. um, and um, so actually try and challenge because one thing that that's totally in your arsenal of, of available actions um, is that you can just well leave that person Right. Um, it, it's not that we need to keep keep working for people who turn out to be toxic or turn out to be um, confusing or not willing to well lay lay out their whole plan and just always keep things some somehow fuzzy so that no one can challenge them on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if you feel that this people is not honest or not truthful or not fully truthful. Um, it always helps to remind yourself that there's always a second path. Um, And um, so you can really mean it when you ask them. So what do you mean? Are you serious? Is that aligned with our broader mission? I said this before on the podcast in different kinds of ways, but I'll say it like this again in this kind of way. Um, Work, not even work, leadership relationships are not suicide packs. Um, we're not required to go down the sh- down with the ship together, you know. Um, and I think a lot of people are figuring that out, quite frankly, right now in the world. I think you're seeing that. Um, and I think the the one of the one of the interesting knock on effects from the COVID nineteen pandemic, not just in in the United States or in Germany, but also worldwide, is 
people really have have gotten to the point of understanding that life i think at a material level is short mm-hmm. um now i don't know how that links into their spiritual understanding of life being short that's a different thing but at a material level i think they're really getting that and that's where you see the phenomenon of things like quiet quitting which has always been a thing um or just people just being like you know what, i'm just gonna just drop out like our the labor force participation rate in the united states is right now lower than it ever has been even though our unemployment level is also lower than it ever has been and those two numbers don't should should not track labor force participation should be fairly high while unemployment is low and traditionally that has happened but it's because people are just like yeah you know what i don't get any meaning from flipping burgers and you can pay me 25 dollars an hour all you want it's not gonna get meaning so you have a good day <laughs> and that's a real organizations are having a real chat real real challenge wrapping their arms around this because of the knock-on effect of covid another one was really exposing just how much bad management and bad leadership there is in the world yeah how many zaphod people broxes were keeping and i love the i love which how you framed this keeping everything fuzzy so they can never be questioned um, yeah. And the pandemic made everything really, really clear. We're turning the corner here. Um, we had a couple of other ideas that we were going to talk about. Um, when you read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and you actually look at The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy itself, it oddly enough looks like Wikipedia. And even Douglas Adams back in 22 years ago, back in the year 2000, um, raised that idea that it was sort of this idea of a compendium of knowledge that you could go and get any information from, right? He was he was on to something and being a computer scientist, he was on to the future. Maybe not necessarily the internet, but he was on to sort of how a compendium of knowledge would work and help you be able to choose a journey down a path just by sticking your thumb out and doing a search. So he was he was on to something. He understood something. I don't know if he'd lived another couple another few decades if he would have liked what had come out of Wikipedia or the internet, who knows, right? Um well we'll never know the answer to that question. But it is interesting that he saw that he was starting to see the parallels. He was starting to see sort of how this was all beginning to come together. Mm-hmm. He had a vision of a collaborative guide. And the book, while jokey and humorous and satirical, also does get us, get our, allows us to get our arms around that idea that you can have an inkling of a vision of the future. It doesn't all have to be fuzzy. Um, we opened up this podcast by asking you, what can we learn from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? So, Michael, I'd like to close this podcast, and I, I always close by making some comments about staying on the path. But um, how can leaders use the insights from this book to stay on the leadership path? And I want to thank you, by the way, for coming on today. I thank you for your time. I know it's very valuable. Um, and I thank you for reaching out to me to come on. And this is a great book. Love to have you on in future podcast episodes, maybe to talk about the restaurant at the end of the universe. We could even do the whole entire series. <laughs> you know, <laughs> do Mostly Harmless. I mean, it's been a while since I read all of those books. And I'm sure there's nuggets in, um, in all of them to, uh, to bring Absolutely. out and to talk yeah. about. But um, what can leaders learn from this that they can use to stay on the path after what we've talked about today? Um, For me, probably the biggest lesson is um, how the book ends, um, which is by that big, that that huge reveal um, 
about the 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 answer to the ultimate question about life, the universe, and all the rest, which happens to be forty two. Forty two. Um, uh, which the computer puts out after I I don't know like seven million years of calculating it and. It totally convinced that this is the answer to that ultimate question. The problem, of course, is that it turns out that nobody really knows what the actual question is. And I feel like this is probably the most timely aspect of, of the book. And because I feel looking around, I feel like we're living in these times where everyone seems to have opinions and answers to almost everything. Um, only that no one really agrees upon what the actual questions are. Mm -hmm. And if if we would just, well, coming back to what we mentioned earlier, if, if we all would just, well, spend a little less effort on justifying the answers and opinions that we have, and instead trying to invest um, more of our time and, and effort into what the actual questions are, the important things that we need to to spend our um, our powers on. Um, that would help us all a great deal. And it turns out that that's the that was the reason why the Earth was built in the first place, because that was actually uh, and and that's the big reveal. Sorry to 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 give it away and to spoiler that for those who haven't read the book, but um, well, it turns out that that was the purpose of the Earth in the first place. So um, and and I feel that this is a strong hint that that Adams gave us with that book, that it really pays to step back, reflect on what's really important, what matters, and what questions do we need to ask so that then we can make good use of the answers and the facts and the opinions that we have and tailor them so that we find a solution to that, that question and that we can light the path for forward for future generations to solve these things. Awesome, <clears throat> awesome, awesome, yeah. I I agree. Normally I go on a whole like ramble here at the end about staying on the path. I ramble down my own path. Um, but I agree. I don't think there's a whole lot to add to that. Enjoy the process maybe might be the thing to add to that. Um, taking joy from that. Allowing that to be the thing. Not necessarily maybe where you find meaning, but allow that to be the place where you find joy. is critical for leaders to have success particularly in a culture of outrage, mm. um, particularly in a culture of anxiety and stress, a culture of nervousness and fear. Joy is the ultimate superpower. And if you can find joy in the process, and that doesn't mean you got to be walking around with a smile on your face all the time. That's not what I'm talking about. And also doesn't mean Just you have to whistle while you work. Put your finger up. Just your thumb your, up. Exactly. Put your thumb up. <laughs> And don't and enjoy the ride. And enjoy the ride. And don't panic. Yeah, exactly. I'd like to thank my guest today, Dr. Michael Gerhartz, for coming on the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. Uh, Dr. Gerhartz, is there anything you'd like to promote before we close today? Anything you'd like the listeners to know about? Um, any places where they can find you online or if they want to connect with you and take advantage of your consulting or even just subscribe to your podcast, where do they need to go in order to make that happen? Oh, 
Well, I suggest to, to just hop on my website, Michael Gerhards, that's G-E-R-H-A-R-Z, one word, michaelgerhards.com. Um, head over to my blog, The Daily Thoughts on Clarity, or listen to the podcast twice a week, two minutes, um, every episode, just a very short and concise insight. But most importantly, I, I would be really honored if you gave the Leaders Light the Path manifesto a look, because that captures sort of a, lo a lot of the things that, that we we um, covered today. And that that's sort of the essence of 15 years of working with leaders on the things that we were discussing today and, and condensing it in what, what I believe is a very uh, clear path to, to do that work and light the path for your team, for your customers, for your audience, and well, make an impact in the world. Awesome. We will have links to everywhere where you can get the manifesto, where you can connect with uh, Dr. Gerhardt's and where you can listen to his podcast in the show notes below the player on Apple, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, and everywhere where you will be listening to this episode. So please click on those links in the show notes and please take the time to connect with Dr. Gerhardt's and leaders use his information to help light the path forward for your team thank you dr gearhart once again for coming on the show and with that i'm out thanks listen and subscribe to the leadership lessons from the great books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on including itunes stitcher google podcasts and even spotify and please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules and over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, and subscribe to the Little Red podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that Little Red book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership. Co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan, this is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. You pay for shipping, and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast, 
That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents audio experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.